Let us turn to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13 to 20. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13 to 20. We have been going over a Hebrews series. And if you have a pew Bible, you can find this passage on page 944. And once again, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13 through 20. And when you have found it, please rise for the reading of God's word. And hear now the word of the Lord. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. I just want to start by first thanking Pastor Paul for taking the last two Sundays and preaching about Christianity versus liberalism that has been popping up. Um, we are inundated. We're in the muck of it. If we don't like something, then you'll have some other liberal, quote-unquote, theologian that will come out and say, actually, the Bible doesn't mean it this way. The Bible is actually saying something else when the Bible directly is saying this clear thing about a subject or topic. And so please, I encourage you to listen to it. And actually, I wanted to end that thanks to Pastor Paul with, he preached again this past Saturday, so yesterday, and of the three sermons he gave in a row, that was the best. So you saved the best for last. And about 30 people showed up to Saturday. But what I've asked is for Junsuk to procure this sermon so it's about a 20, 25-minute sermon. So if you want to listen to it, please reach out to him, and he can give you the file, and you can listen to Pastor Paul's sermon on what repentance looks like. That being said, uh, this passage, or this morning our passage, lies in between what we did last time when we spoke on Hebrews, which is the warning of the peril of immaturity. And then what we'll see in chapter 7, which is the exposition of Melchizedek. This is a word or a passage in this word that acts as a hinge. So this is a hinge passage. And while connecting these two passages, there's an understanding that we must have. So there's an understanding that the author is telling us that we must have before we go into Melchizedek and after we see that there is a warning given to those that are immature in the faith. What is that understanding that is pivotal to the Christian before moving forward? This passage, I'll just start out by saying this, this passage 
has really only one glaring point that the writer is hammering home. And it's this. In Jesus Christ, you are the heirs of the promise. In Jesus Christ, you are the heirs of the divine promise. This is the theme that runs throughout the whole passage, and so you might be wondering, what does that mean? And so keeping that in mind, I would like to give us some, some supporting points to that main point. And the three supporting points are Abraham's faith, God's oath, and Jesus our forerunner. Abraham's faith, God's oath, and Jesus our forerunner. But before that, Pastor Paul, myself, the elders, the deacons, the leaders of this church, when we come up on stage, when we pray or preach, we address sin a lot. We do. And while I would address all the sins that God would mention in his word, there are those that stand out at times. Why is that? You may wonder. Why don't I address, say, thievery? as much as I do abortion or the immorality of the LGBTQ plus doctrines. Wouldn't someone, wouldn't someone who steals from the church, let's say he or she dips his or her hand in the treasuries of God, the church's offerings, and they would do it unbeknownst their neighbor or the usher and they would steal. Isn't that a sin? Shouldn't you talk about those kinds of sins? And I would say, absolutely, absolutely, this is a heinous sin. But I'm going to also ask, who's doing that? Are you doing that? But there is a mass indoctrination and convincing of minds, especially younger minds such as yourselves, and to think, and we use things like euphemisms and say things like abortion is health care to mask the horrific act of murder of the most helpless of us. And we always want exceptions. What are the exceptions? Give us the exceptions. Give us the exceptions. Aren't there exceptions? Of course there are exceptions. Why, do you all, why are you always looking for the exceptions when you know that this is a horrific act of killing a child? And now in our workplaces and schools, we are to bow to the God of LGBTQ. You're made to feel bad if you're quote-unquote cisgender. And we wonder why our young people don't want to be labeled cis. So we are to celebrate without reservation their ideations of whatever gets concocted up next that are progressively getting so perverse that I can't even mention it or I won't mention it here. So why do you get worked up about things like this? Why can't you just let people live the way they want? Isn't that discrimination against the marginalized? That's the pushback I get. Some people think I only have friends here, which is true, you guys are my friends, but I actually talk with a lot of other people who aren't Christian, and we go back and forth, But my point when they come to me questions like this is I try to show them ultimately the attack isn't simply on tradition. It isn't just attacking the tradition of marriage. It isn't just attacking the tradition or the understanding that babies are the most helpless and innocent of us. 
but I'm trying to show what does tradition point to? What does our tradition point to? Why are we here to fiercely protect it? See, all sexual immorality, not just those that are in the alphabet, all sexual immorality goes against marriage. That's what porneia means in Greek. And marriage is between a man and a woman. And people think that marriage, though, is a social construct. If it is a social construct, we can change it and shape it according to our desires or in the name of tolerance. Pick whichever one you want. But what we understand is that marriage is not a social construct. If it was, it, we wouldn't have a problem with changing it. I wouldn't have a problem with changing it. But marriage isn't a social construct. It's not a club. It's not like a gaming club where you have a discord for your members and you talk about video games. As nerdy as that is, I mean, who's going to do that, right? But marriage, excuse me. Is it, oh, okay. Marriage is an institution given by God. Who instituted it? Who instituted marriage? We see in the Bible, God did. And when God instituted it, He defined it. And so when you redefine what God has already defined, when you take what was there already and you decide to redefine it, whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? Jesus Christ in Mark 10, 6 says, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus said this. So when you try to separate what God has joined together, whose side are you on? And when you call people to repentance, but you can't call sin a sin anymore because you're worried about those that your feeling, their feelings may get hurt. And by the way, I do care. I don't like hurting people's feelings. Um, you know, maybe some of you don't think that. But I don't. And I'd rather not. Uh, what are you telling? If you can't say that, though, and your call is to repent, what are you telling them to repent of? Is it some abstract idea of sin? Is sin where you don't live out your truth? Is it an ever-shifting truth? Is it like sand on the seashore? It's always changing and shifting. Is that what sin is to you? No, I don't think so. But then the response will be, but weren't we called to love the sinner? We're called to love the sinner. And I completely agree. I am with you 100%. We are called to love the sinner. And you can say this phrase as much as you want. Love the sinner, hate the sin. Love the sinner, hate the sin. But it's the sinner that God sends to hell. Not the sin. You love the sinner then 
how you love the sinner as God loved you. You love the sinner as God showed you love. He called you out of your sin. And he called you into what? He called you out of your sin into what, though? And so here's that first point, Abraham's faith. Verse 13 to 15, it says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, attained the promise. So Abraham is mentioned four times in the book of Hebrews. He is mentioned as a prototype. A prototype of what? Of enduring faith. That's what you're supposed to see when you see Abraham. He is an example, a prototype of enduring faith. So when God called Abraham or Abram, he called him out of Ur, right? When he called him out of Ur in the Middle East, he called him out of Ur when he was a patriarch. He was already a leader in his family. He was already worshiping other idols. He already had a family. He already had riches. And he called them out of all of that into what? What did God call Abram out of? Or into what? Into faith. And this quote that is in Hebrews is a quote from Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22 is another promise he gives. So he gives the first promise in Genesis 12, I will bless you and multiply you. And then in Genesis chapter 22, he says the pro promise again, but this time he says, surely I will. He gives this emphatic, I will, and he puts an oath before himself and he swears by himself and he says, surely I will bless you and multiply you. What is this stemming from? This is after Isaac was the sacrifice. So this is a story that many of us know. This was a test of faith. Isaac was born to Abraham at such an old age. 100, that's, that's, a, that's an age. You know, I think about even my age. I think about my kid. Even the elders, they kind of joked like, man, when she gets up this, to this age, you will be a very old man. I say, brother, I am already an old man. And so imagine me double that age and having a precious child. Finally, finally God has answered this promise and you have an heir, you have a child. And God tells you, you need to sacrifice this child. You need to sacrifice Isaac. That wouldn't compute to most of us. It doesn't, why? I finally have this child, and I love this child to pieces. Even in my old age, with all the strength that I have left, I love this child. And God is saying, you have to kill this child for me. You have to sacrifice this child. And you're like, what? That's what we might think. Abraham says, okay. And he prepares for the sacrifice, and he goes. And he ties up. And he binds his son, the son, son whom he loves with everything that he has. And he lifts the knife to kill and sacrifice Isaac. And it's the angel of God, God, who says, Abraham, Abraham, and calls him to stop. And he says, now I know that you love me. 
Why did Abraham have to go through that? You might be thinking, why did he have to go through that? Secondly, would you be able to do that? I don't know. But why did Abraham have to go through that or almost go through that? Faith requires action. You can just say faith all you want, but faith requires action. I'm going to go a little lighter here. I've been a little heavy, I suppose. But there's a Disney movie I really enjoy. I mentioned it quite a few times. And um, it's Beauty and the Beast. And um, I can talk about Beauty and the Beast for hours. Hours. If you ask Sam, he was driving, and it was like an hour drive, and I was basically exegeting Beauty and the Beasts to him for about an hour, and I could have gone more, could have gone more. Could have talked about the overture, I could have talked about the climax, I could talk about projection, the wanting, the yearning, the Disney renaissance, I could talk about all of that, and how there's this, there are these two writers, and this one writer also for Lion King, who's the fourth part of the Disney renaissance, paired up with Elton John to make Can You Feel the Love Tonight, and all that stuff, I could talk about all of that, but there is one thing I really enjoy. So I'm not going to nerd on Beauty and the Beast. I, for, sorry, I'm so sorry. But there is one thing that this movie really stood out in this movie that stood out. And the whole premise is this guy, he's a spoiled young brat. By the way, he was like 10, which is crazy. Anyway, he's a spoiled young brat, turns into a beast because of some enchantress. And then he has to learn how to love and be loved in return, okay? And then the spell is gonna be broken. That's the premise of the movie. That's, that's the conflict. So you always start out a story with a conflict. And so that's the conflict. When is the spell broken? If you see the movie, when is the spell broken? Hope I'm not ruining the movie for any of you. It's from 1991, so you're really behind if you haven't watched it. But when is the spell broken? Is it when they love each other? Because that was the clause from the enchantress. You have to love and be loved in return, okay? That was the clause. Is that the case? So let's go back to the overture. The overture is talking about, and she's, you know, Bella's, you know, going around town saying good morning or bonjour to everybody, right? And then she stops by a fountain, and then she has this melody, and then she talks about her prince in chapter three that she doesn't know is Prince Charming yet until chapter three, right? And this melody is exactly mimicked in the middle of this movie where this song, I said I would nerd out, but uh, in this song where it's, it's titled Something Sweet, okay? And they're, they're having a snowball fight and they realize that they love each other. They realize that they love each other then. They have a snowball fight. They're like, wow, there's something about him that I didn't know. He's gentle, kind, and, and you know, she glanced this way, I thought I, you know, anyway, but all this stuff is happening. They realize they love each other. Was the spell broken? The answer is no, the spell wasn't broken. When was the spell broken? The spell was broken when the beast said, I love her, and then finally when Belle said, I love you too. That's when the spell was broken. There was a confession, and I really enjoyed that about this movie. This is what stood out. The confession is what broke the spell, not the act or the feeling of love. Do you get it? Even the secular world knows this. Why are we so confused? 
We think faith, all I have to have is faith, 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 and there's nothing that follows. I can't say I love, 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 and there's nothing that follows. The feeling that you have inside doesn't constitute love. It's the action that happens afterwards. Faith requires action, and I want to add something to that. Faith leads to action. Just like when the spell was broken, when love is confessed, action without faith is not acceptable because faith precedes action. Now, you might say, I can confess. I'll just confess. I love you. I love you. I love you. Is that truly love? If we take this example back, would the spell have been broken if they just confessed, I love you? And the answer is no, because faith must precede the action. Now, if there's action without faith, what is that? And Jesus tells us what it is. Matthew 7, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You would think this is action. But he continues, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? This is not just regular action. This is incredible action. This is incredible shows of what would have been love in our eyes. And this is how Jesus finishes. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, or depart from me, you evildoers. Faith has to precede action. So even when God commanded Abraham to offer up his son, some people will give this commentary, Abraham must have been so much in pain, and he, oh, I don't want to do this, you're forcing my hand, oh God, and I don't just, oh, I'm just going to do it anyway. That's what some commentators may speculate. Abraham may, be a face, may have faced regret, but the answer is no. Look at Hebrews chapter 11. Abraham believed that God could raise his son from the dead. That's how much faith he had. It's precisely this quality of commitment that is appropriate then to those who would be heirs of the divine, divine promise. Prototype. When we call Abraham a prototype, it means that's someone we follow. So it is a quality of commitment that is appropriate to those who would be heirs of the divine promise. God's oath. And now the writer starts to develop this idea of God swearing by himself. There's a philosopher in that time who, would have, who wrote that and conclude that the swearing of the oath was to help Abraham's faith along. So God gave this oath to Abraham in Genesis 22 to assist his faith. But the writer of Hebrews has a different point, different from Philo's, because Philo didn't write Hebrews. Paul did. Anyway, um, the purpose of the oath was to prove how irrevocable the promise given to Abraham was. The purpose of the oath was to prove how irrevocable the promise given to Abraham was. And by swearing by himself, 
God is, in a sense, in a sense, binding himself to his word and character. What does that mean? So we go on to verse 16. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. There is a universal human practice throughout the world regarding oaths that this writer is pointing to. When you take an oath, you, you, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you God. That's the oath. That's the oath. So help you God is the oath. And you are effectively saying that you will speak and God will be your judge if you lie. God is your witness as you speak. That's the oath. That means you take an oath by something greater than yourself. And there's nothing greater than God. And we see this in Deuteronomy chapter 6 or 13. You're supposed to swear by God. It is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. Just four chapters later in chapter 10 verse 20, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. And in chapter 10, it's hold fast to him is added. Because to, to finish your oath, you need to hold fast to God. That's a beautiful kind of addition from chapter 6. So in a sense, when you swear, when you break the oath, or you be lying, you be breaking technically the third commandment. You be breaking the third commandment. And some people, especially when I, I, I was growing up, some people would swear on their mother's grave. You know, I swear on my mother's grave, and then they still lie. I was like, I can't trust you. I can't trust you and your mother's grave. What is that? And so they would still lie because their mother's grave is not the highest thing. Maybe high, I don't know, to you, to me perhaps, but not to everybody. What is the highest? So verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We shift from Abraham's now, Abraham now to Christians. We were talking about Abraham's from verses 13 to 15. Now we are talking about Christians, the heirs of the promise. So how did we become the inheritors of the divine promise? Well, through Christ, of course. So why is Abraham mentioned then? He obtained the promise through enduring faith. It is an encouragement, therefore, Christians to also have this enduring faith because the writer is showing us that God is absolutely trustworthy in keeping his promises. And what are the contents of this assurance that we have in Christ? So there's a promise and there's an oath. These are the two things. It's irrecoverably underscored by the statement that it is impossible for God to lie. This is in Numbers 23, 19 as well. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? When God speaks, it happens. Let there be light, light. God speaks, and for this promise, he also caps it with an oath so that those that are in Christ 
are assured that they are heirs of the divine promise. There are those, there are actually four parts in the Bible where he says, I will not take back my words. This is, this is an oath. So, and this is one that we see here in Isaiah chapter 31, verse 2, that I want to read for you. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. He is saying he will not stay his hand when the time of wrath comes. This is also assured because he has spoken. It's a warning to those who would not listen to God or to those who would dare to twist his words. And we live in a world where people will try to twist God's words. And the writer calls us, rightly then, refugees. What are you fleeing from if you're a refugee? In the Bible, there are refugee cities. What are you fleeing from? You're fleeing from the avenger. You seek asylum from the avenger. Who is the avenger in the Bible? It's God. So you are fleeing from the wrath of God into God. That's the picture that we see. So why do we say that we will not compromise on what Bible calls a sin because we want to also say that what God calls a blessing is a blessing. What the Bible calls a sin is a sin. What the Bible calls a blessing is a blessing. When God has spoken, it is true. He cannot lie. In fact, when he speaks, it is truth because God is truth. Jesus says also, I am the truth. So when he speaks, he doesn't speak lies. He doesn't speak any words that would ever fall to the ground. It will always accomplish when it has left his mouth. When he speaks, it is true. How so? Where are we fleeing toward? I said before that you are a refugee fleeing from the avenger, seeking deliverance from God to God. And here the writer says, it's to the hope that is set before us. And this is what I want us to understand. This Christian idea of hope isn't some fluid cloud or phantasma. The picture that we see, it is a solid object consisting of the present and future salvation. It is a solid object because the hope that is set before us is Christ himself. It is God. That points us to our final point. Jesus, our forerunner. Verse 19 and 20, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You know, the anchor of a ship provides incredible stability and firmness for a ship not to be moved or not to move when it should not. For our soul... Christ is the sure and steadfast anchor. So there are all these ideas that will try to fool you, dupe you, deceive you, convince you. The wiles of the world, they're smarter than us. How do you know you won't be swayed? How do you know you won't be confused? How do you know that one day your emotions might get the best of you and you will not then sit in truth? How do you know The Bible shows us because of the anchor that we have, you will not be moved. Christ is our sure and steadfast anchor. Christ is the sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. 
And so what is this promise? What do we hope in? Through the anchor, we enter into the inner place behind the curtain, and the inner place is all of this. The inner place is where we draw near to God. In the beginning, I asked, which side are you on? I'll tell you which side you were on. You were on the opposing side. You were on the side of punishment and wrath. You were on opposite sides with God. You complained and you fought with God's laws. You said, I don't like your laws. Maybe you didn't say it with your mouth, but you lived it with your actions. Your heart betrays you because you think you're following God, but you're actually acting in the way of the world. You are on opposite sides with God. But through Jesus Christ, who is the sure and steady anchor, we can go to the inner place behind the curtain where it was only reserved for the high priest once a year. We can go there now. Jesus pointing us as the forerunner points us to his life, death, and resurrection that we will also follow. And we get to be in the presence of God, not in the opposing side, but in Jesus Christ, we get to be with God. That's the promise Jesus Christ gives to all those that will put their faith in him. This shows us that God's word is demonstrated as faithful, no matter what the world says. His word is reliable. It's been proved over and over. And he stands behind his promise. The high priestly ministry of Jesus that secured us our salvation is certain and guaranteed by God. And we are now able to enter into the presence of God in priestly service and be with him and serve him forever. That's the anchor that we have. The divine promise that we have been given in Jesus Christ is we get to be on the side of God. And so that's why when we say repent, it means when you are on the opposing side of God, repent and believe in God. And when you believe in Jesus Christ, you get to enter the inner sanctum, the holy of holies, and you get to be with God. Not because of what you've done. You've only done sin. What have you done? You've only confessed with your mouth. Your heart wasn't there. But with faith, what God has done, he's just changed your heart. He has given you a new heart so that you can love him. He's given you a heart of godly repentance so that now you hate the sin that once drove you away from God, put you on opposing sides, and you love God desperately and you want to follow him. Because with him there is peace, with him there is security, with him there is blessing. What God says is a blessing is a blessing. What God says is a curse is a curse. And so he is saying, in me, you have all the blessings. There is no lack. Look at Psalm 23. I shall not want, because the Lord is my shepherd. There is nothing lacking when you are in God. And so that is what Jesus has secured us by his life, death, and resurrection. This is the divine promise that we are heirs to. And so praise be to God for his grace. Praise be to God for his mercy. Praise be to God for his love for his people. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you for the divine promise that you give us. And we also understand that we come before you as sinners. We come before you not perfected yet, but in your Holy Son, we place our trust and faith. He is the sure and steadfast anchor that we have. He is the hope that is set before us, and he is the one whom we will follow. We pray that you would give us the strength to carry out, to run this race that you have called us to run, to follow you in joy in all that we do. Let's take this time to pray. As the word has convicted your heart with the Holy Spirit, lift your prayers to God. And if you have failed before God, know that it is God who's calling you today to repent and to turn back to him, to put your faith in Jesus so that you can enter into the holy place. Let's pray.